I'm Dave Mitchell, the preacher of the day, and it's good to be with you. And uh, we're excited for what God has for us in God's Word. We're in a series called Romans Living Free. Living Free. Romans chapter 1 through 11, we continue through the chapter by chapter in a book. That's how we like to do it. As God teaches us, then Romans uh, 1 through 11 is all about being set free by Jesus Christ. And then Romans uh, chapter 12 through 16 is all about living free. It should make a difference. When Christ sets us free, we should therefore then live free. It should make a difference. Calvary Church, we love to go through the Bible. Some churches like to do it topically, and that's okay as well. But we believe going through the Bible is also topical because the topic of this morning is living free, living free by accepting others. It's all about acceptance. I want to read the text. You have an outline that is available for you in the uh, uh, bulletin. I was going to say scriptures in the bulletin. You're welcome to take a look at that. Let me read what we're going to study together this morning and then show you what it means and show you how it can be true for us and illustrate it as well. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, we read this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of all that he just said, in light of the Scriptures from the Old Testament that gives us hope, perseverance and encouragement, in light of God's giving us perseverance and encouragement as well, the same mind, therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And then he goes on to explain why in verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's the Jewish people, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And then he talks about the Gentiles. The Jews need to learn to accept the Gentiles, especially in those days. For the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Now he quotes from a number of sources, King David, Moses, Isaiah. And I'll make sense of this as we get to it. Quoting from uh, the Old Testament, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all the Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. And then finally from Isaiah. There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. So it's all about the Gentiles being brought into the faith with Jew and Gentile together. And they conclude sort of a benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, And so this morning, it's all about learning what it means to accept one another as God has accepted us. It's kind of a big deal. I went through the internet, picked out some of the headlines of the the kinds of issues that are out there that hopefully as you shop around on the internet, you will actually catch some of these news headlines. Here's our president saying, we want to welcome, we want to accept people who have different uh, sexual orientation or inclinations in their lives, the LBGT. And even religious organizations are going to be forced to have to receive them. No exemptions for them. So there's this desire for acceptance amongst some in that category. Then Rick Warren got himself a little bit of hot water with some people as he talks about the acceptance and the need for uh, accepting the Muslims. And uh, we don't always have a good history with some of that faith and some of the accidents and some of the tragedies that have occurred over the years. 
Uh, but Rick Warren says, I want to be accepting of all people. That even includes Muslims. Muslims need Jesus too. Then we find this issue, the illegal immigration that is happening on the Texas border. If you've been hearing about that, it is a rampant problem. It's a humanitarian crisis, as some would call it. Uh, whatever it is, whatever the title we call it, there are groups of children, there are 50,000, 60,000 children that are coming from Central America because they want to be accepted in America, United States of America. And then there's the problem that happens in Israel. Hopefully you've been reading about that. Gaza, the Jews, those from Hamas will not accept Jews as a Jewish state. They will not accept Israel as a place for Jews to claim as their home. It's a big deal. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are dying as this war goes back and forth between the two. And then we find this situation in uh, Chicago. Talk about your humanitarian crisis. This is just last week. 22 shot, two dead in an quote-unquote unacceptable Chicago gun violence. Unacceptable. That's what it's called. It's unacceptable. Those are the polite political terms that people throw around. It's a tragedy. It is a crisis. And it's devastating. Now, kind of the irony of it all is this. And this is for those who like to think about some of the things that happens in politics and the irony that occurs there. The new mayor, the mayor um, of Chicago, has said just yesterday uh, that he's going to accept 1,000 of these illegal immigrant children that have come from Central America through Mexico across the Texas border or are now in the United States of America looking for a place to live. So Emmanuel is going to bring these young children into Chicago where young children are being slaughtered. If there is one way to stem the tide of illegal immigrants is to send them to Chicago where it may be more dangerous than Central America. But that's the irony, the craziness of the world in which we live where they can't even stop the crime in their own city, now they're going to bring a thousand more there. It's the last place as a parent that I would want my child to go. So this whole desire for acceptance, the struggle, this battle, the, the literal wars, people dying over this whole issue of being accepted and learning what acceptance is all about. I want us to talk about it, and then I'm going to give you illustrations. I'm going to give you many stories this morning, and I'm hoping one or more of these stories are beginning to touch us in a way that makes us be the people God wants us to be. That's the goal. As I look at this and the outline you have available, if you'd like to follow along there, here is the first observation that I believe comes from God's Word in verses 4 through 6. It is this. To be more accepting of people, you need a unified biblical perspective and a selfless motive for God's glory. Two parts to that. Number one, we need to have a mindset that understands God's Word, understands the the timeless truths of God's Word, a mindset that says, this is God's Word for me. I know what it says. I know how I believe it. I will practice it. It is a, is a firm foundation. Remember the last couple of weeks we've been talking about opinions, questionable things, incidental things. Well, God says, I want you to know the Word. That's why He says to us in verse 4, for what I was written in earlier times was written for our instruction." so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We have hope as we read the Old Testament. Now, a lot of us don't 
find it very amusing or interesting because there's great portions of it that are very hard to understand. But the problem of today is this. It's as relevant as one week's ago headline in the Orange County Register. Some evangelical Christians are rethinking the Bible. There are pastors who preach in churches like our church. There are attendees who attend a church like our church. And there's this reformation that is taking place that is kind of going backwards from Martin Luther. That's sort of moving away from the text, away from Scripture, allowing God's Word to no longer be the significant driving force of God's revelation, but moving away from it because we need to understand Scripture in light of the culture in which we live. We are in a changing society, the Word is. If you're in college or in high school, you're going to be hearing professors hammer this. We're living in a changing society where we need to understand that truth is not what it once was. It's not your mom and your dad's, your grandma's and your grandpa's truth anymore. We need to stay with the times. We need to be current. We need to be relevant. And this particular article written by Jim Hinch that I've talked to a number of times, he's called us to talk about some of the religion stuff he writes in the paper, uh, he was exploring this and showing how in this particular article there is a big growing population of churches like ours that are no longer steadfast believing that the Bible is the literal truth of God's Word, but that it probably has elements of what God wants us to know, but we need to be able to dismiss those portions of it that we don't believe in. We need to dismiss those portions of it that are filled with error and contradictions. We need to have permission to somehow look into the Word and see for ourselves whether this is what God said, what God intended, or is this a timeless truth, or it's irrelevant because of the changing cultural values of the world today. So that's what he's talking about. He actually quotes, you see the picture of Rob Bell that is holding the surfboard lives down here in Laguna Beach. doesn't actually quote Rob Bell in the article, but quotes previous interviews with Rob Bell, and one of which his wife has said that people who believe what I believe, that we are guilty of bibliolatry. That is, we worship the Bible, but we don't worship the God of the Bible, or we diminish the God of the Bible by worshiping the Bible. That's not a new term. I graduated from Dallas Seminary a long time ago in 1977. Yes, that is a long time ago. And even then, I heard the attack, the criticism, the jive. You're guilty of bibliolatry. So one of the great things, if you're younger than me, is the longer you live, the more you see jokes one generation after another. They just keep on coming up. And so that's not a shock. It's not a surprise. It's not even cute. It's not even new. And it's not even true. When we believe that the Bible is a literal word of God, as the Apostle Paul gives to us in verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. He says, I want you to study this thing. I want you to learn this thing because from this you receive perseverance and encouragement. You receive hope because the God who gives perseverance and encouragement in verse 5 will grant you the same mind. He'll give you a mindset that understands it. So all this is this foundation to what I'm, where I want to go. But if you don't have the foundation that God is working, God is revealing, God is teaching, God's truth is relevant, it is something I can rely upon, then I can just form any kind of division that uh, I want. I, I become the God of the Bible, not letting the Bible guide me to the God who wants to love and care for me and accept me. 
And this whole idea of evangelicals rethinking the literal truth of God's word, it goes all the way back to the very first words of Satan in the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the very first words out of his mouth to Eve, indeed has God said. Satan has had a desire to diminish God's revelation of his word. That is a constant, constant task that Satan tries to infuse into churches like ours. I'm not saying Jim Hinch or Rob Bell or anybody else is saying what Satan says. I'm saying that is a desire of Satan, to diminish what God has said. Now, here's a good example. Verse 4 says, Go back to the Old Testament. Things you have written and read in the Old Testament that are for our instruction so that you might have hope. Here's what happened in the Old Testament. You go back to 800, 900 B.C., and there's a king by the name of King Ahab. King Ahab wants to know whether he should go to war, so he gathers together 400 of his best prophets, 400 of the pastors of the times in those days. So they have a big convention, and all the prophets gather together. King Ahab says, I want to go to war. It's my desire to go to war. So prophets, 400 of you, what do you say? This is what I want. Do you agree with me? And they all says, yeah, God's on your side. Yeah, we bless you. Go. We don't care what God says. We've decided to agree with you, king. We understand the times in which we live. Culture is changing. We need to go along with what you want. We won't stand in your way. So here's what the text says. The king of Israel, this is King Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat, he is the king of Judah, said, Let not the king say so. Ahab has 400 prophets on his side. They're all yes men. Whatever you want, yes, 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 go. It's okay. We're living new times. We need to stay up with the times. We need to stay relevant, current. So therefore, it doesn't matter what God says. We say, yes, go. Then we read this. All the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper. For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king, King Ahab. Then the messenger who went to summon Micah spoke to him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them speak favorably. It'd be like somebody coming alongside me, say, Dave, you know, you're taking this whole thing with Scripture too literally, too true, and you have this stand about certain behaviors that, that we think that uh, God needs to, to change His ways, and it's really not relevant, it's not current. So why don't you just get in line with everybody else who's changing the way they see Scripture and just come alongside all the majority of people out there are different from you. They don't agree with you anymore. You're very much a minority in your viewpoint about the literal truths of God's Word. So why don't you get with it and come alongside the rest of us? So there's one prophet who says one thing. There's 400 who have drunk the Kool-Aid and are going along with King Ahab. So that Micah, he shows up. Here's what he says. But Micah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me that I shall speak. Micah did not back down. Even though he's a minority, even though there's pressure to change his ways, even though it could have cost him his life, even though everybody else is doing it differently, Micah, why don't you get with the times? Micah says, I'll do what God says. And Micah proved himself to be true. 
and spoke the truth, and King Ahab suffered for it. We still need people like that because God says in his word, if you want to have an accepting attitude towards others and never have a compromise in your life, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Unless we know God's word, we will diminish it. And unless we have the focus of a biblical perspective in life, it's hard to be fully accepting in a way that God designs it to be. One of the great illustrations of the stories of the Old Testament. If you've ever had fear, discouragement, depression, thoughts of suicide, you go to the Old Testament. Because there are stories that teach God's biblical truth. First Kings chapter 19, Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets that's ever lived. In 1 Kings 18, he has destroyed Baal and all the Baal worshipers. God brought a miracle, the fire that came down from heaven, consumed the altar. And it was a major miracle of the Old Testament. Elijah then in 1 Kings 19 is running for his life, become Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab that we just spoke of. As he ran, he says, God, I don't want to live anymore. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm fearful. Nobody appreciates me. I'm alone. There's no one else like me. God, I give up. I've got no friends. No one cares. God, let me die. When you read a passage like that, if you've ever been in a situation that you're discouraged, despondent, depressed, fearful, feel alone, maybe you don't even want to live anymore. Maybe you've even tried suicide. Maybe you've cut yourself. Maybe you're doing drugs to sort of deaden the pain of life. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's sex. Maybe you're doing things because I just don't want to live. I don't think God loves me. I don't think God cares about me. There's certainly nobody in my family that cares about me. I've got nothing. Then Romans 15.4 says, go to the Old Testament. Read about my people. And here's what God says to Elijah. He comes to Elijah. He says, Elijah. And he, in essence, he says, Man, I want to be with you. I understand your needs. I want to come alongside and guide you. I want to be present and powerful with you. God does miracles. God brings ravens of food. They, they literally bring Him food each day. cares for Him day in and day out. Now, when I'm depressed and discouraged, ravens aren't going to bring me a snack. But the principle is this that when I'm discouraged and despondent and feels like that nobody really cares about me, I know that when I read 1 Kings 19, God's speaking to me. He says, Dave, I'm with you. Dave, I want to care for you. Dave, I will provide for you. And Dave, I want to still work in your life because there is so much more for you to accomplish. And it's at the end of that chapter that God brought Elisha his disciple, into Elijah's life. What did Elisha do? Elisha came along and says, let Elijah know, Elijah, you're not alone. I will come alongside and I will work with you. I will uphold you. I will support you. I will take care of your needs. Until the day comes that Elisha then is commissioned by God. Why do we read the Old Testament? For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. When you read 1 Kings 19, you will have hope because God tells us 
how he works with some of the greatest people that have ever lived. And even they have really bad days, really bad moments. So, with that in mind, we move forward because God wants to give us perseverance and encouragement so that my goal is to bring glory to his name. I know God's word so that I can be accepting of all people and understand the issues that God has before me. And with perseverance and encouragement, keep pressing ahead, even when people will not be accepted or I feel unacceptable, so that the glory of God will shine. It says in verse 6, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do it not for my needs, but for the glory of God. Let me illustrate. Here's story number one. There's a couple... They're in a church very similar to our church, and their names are John and Denise Knight. John and Denise Knight were faithful folks. They'd be in a building. They'd be in a seat sitting next to you. You'd look at them, and you'd think they got their lives together. Everything is okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. That's what you would have thought. Well, John and Denise Knight had a baby. That little baby boy was born with no eyes terribly deformed, and as a result also he had autism and he had various other physical ailments that he had tubes and hoses sticking out of his body. And John looked at that little infant child of his and John grieved over what he saw. And when John Knight, a faithful Christian, church attender, Bible-believing kind of a guy, when John looked at that little baby boy, he said to God, I hate you. I reject you. Do that to me, but don't do it to my son. How dare you bring such harm to such an innocent little life? John and Denise left the church. They left God. They said, we don't need a God that does stuff like that. I don't want to have anything to do with that God. And they walked away, and they walked away, and they stayed away. But there was another couple in that same church and their names are Carl and Geraldine. Carl and Geraldine were aware of John and Denise and aware of the situations in which they were going through, and it was just tragic. But Carl and Geraldine started trying to love on them. Carl and Geraldine, they would stop by in the front door and just say, Hey, I want you to know we're praying for you. Another day they would stop by and they'd bring a fresh baked loaf of bread and leave it at the door for them. The other day, Geraldine would put together a basket full of uh, soap and shampoo and, and all that kind of stuff that makes women's skin look so great and put it at her front door and left a little note that we still love you. They just kept on doing it, kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And finally, Carl and Geraldine invited John and Denise to come over to their house. Carl and Geraldine had three little kids, and so they invited John and Denise and their exceptional child to dinner. So they came over to dinner. And at that dinner time, this is what John said about that meal. Their children, Carl and Geraldine's children, would throw my son up in the air and make him laugh and do funny bird sounds. That was confounding because most people, most adults couldn't do that. And so I would have this extraordinary expression of love and affection at the dinner table here and I would turn to my left and there would be at least one of these three children playing with my little boy like he was a real boy. I wasn't even sure he was a real boy at times. 
and a result of the faithfulness of Carl and Geraldine and their dropping of little touches of love, John and Denise came back to Jesus, came back to the church. They felt accepted. And John said they persisted. They persisted. That was a big deal, that they persisted with us. I never felt like I was alone when I was with them. God is in the business of taking the deformed and the hurt and the injured and the rebellious and causing people like you and me to come and accept them. And over time, they accept Jesus. God has also given to us a second truth about this. Not only that my mind and my heart is persisting, persevering, encouraged to move ahead by the Old Testament, by the New Testament, that I keep going to where God wants me to go for His glory. People who follow the Word of God, believe in the Word of God, have that power behind them. But secondly, we learn from Jesus and how He accepted people. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us, the glory of God. Here are some of the passages that show how Jesus did it. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, come to me all, all, everybody. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you're doing, doesn't matter anything about you. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I, I want to teach you. Hear from me. Hear, hear how I did it. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. One of those examples, Ephesians chapter 4 says, be kind to one another. And here is the key how Christ did it. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And this wonderful passage, another illustration. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at His disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It can't believe that Jesus would actually hang out with sinners. We don't allow sinners at Calvary Church. Right? No. I don't know whether it's coming across, but there's a whole lot of sarcasm in what I just said. We love sinners. Because that's how I learned to love myself. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well that need a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus loves the brokenhearted. He loves the sinners. He loves those that are lost and seemingly will never be found. He just loves on them. How do you accept people? You accept people by learning how Jesus accepted people. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you heard me touch on this story before, but I'm going to take it from there as well. There's a woman by the name of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. College, university professor, taught at Syracuse University. She was the head of the Women's Center, the Women's Study. She's a lesbian, had a lesbian partner. Played the role, dressed the role, everything about the role. Rosaria was the real deal. She looked at people like me and you, and she considered us to be intellectually impaired because we just don't get it. We're not with the times. We need to change. We need to be more understanding of the diversity of the world in which we live. Well, Rosaria struck up a relationship with a guy by the name of Ken, and he is a pastor, and his wife, Floyd. 
Oh, Ken and Floyd began to build this relationship with Rosaria, and just over the course of time, they actually invited Rosaria to dinner. So Rosaria accepted. Here in New York, Syracuse University, big university town. So they came over. At that time, Rosaria says, I believe at this time that God was dead and that if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. So if you believe that God believes that, then you would understand where Rosaria was coming from. And so they invited Rosaria over for the purpose of getting to know her. And here's how she describes some of that time. Ken and Floyd did something at that meal that has a long Christian history. They invited a stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen, to learn, to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Since this beginning, the journey in which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure. And this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of this journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off, quote-unquote, studying Scripture and my heart. Ken knew at that time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. Rosaria now, she goes on to tell the story. It's much longer. But she became a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, has renounced homosexual lifestyle, and is now one of the outspoken spokeswomen standing up for Christ, the Scriptures, and the abstinence of the homosexual community. Ken and Floyd, they learned from Jesus. They dined with a sinner. And in the course of two years, two years, built that relationship. And Rosaria now has accepted Jesus Christ. It's not something you preach into someone. It's not something you harangue into someone. It's not something you nag into something, someone. It's when the Spirit of God is working because He allows us to have the opportunity to accept people regardless of who they are, what they are, how they are, everything about them. And then we find this. God has three reasons why we should be accepting of people. That's where we get into sort of a little difficult passage to understand it completely. I'll just touch on it, let me explain it, and then illustrate it. We need to accept others. Why should we accept people so that they can see the work of God in our lives? That's where Paul quotes from verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 are actually here in the blue on the screen, or the turquoise, whatever that color is. But it comes out of this context of 2 Samuel 22. So Paul is quoting from 2 Samuel 22. So the Old Testament is so valuable. We go back there, we learn, and so that it can apply the principles for us today. So here's what it says in 2 Samuel 22. 
who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who arise against me. You rescue me from the violent man. And here's Paul's quote from that passage in verses 8 and 9 of Romans 15. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And so what David is saying here, what Paul is taking from David's words are, why should I accept other people to give praise to God because of the work that God has done in my life? What David is talking about here, he brings me out from my enemies. He lifts me above those who rise against me. He rescues me from the violent man. He is a tower of deliverance to his king. And he shows loving kindness to his anointed. God does all that, so I say praise to God. So Paul says, I love that quote. I'm going to put that quote in Romans 15 because I want the Jews to be accepting of the Gentiles. I want you to see how God works when you accept others. And God says, here's how God has worked. And here's how God wants to work in your life, by accepting others. Secondly, we accept them to warn so that they will be held accountable to the Lord. God doesn't go soft. God doesn't say it doesn't matter what you do. God does care. So he quotes, Paul does, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And in Deuteronomy 32, 43, Paul pulls this one phrase in the blue, Rejoice, O nations, with his people. But the context of that rejoicing is this. Why should we rejoice? For he will avenge the blood of his servants and he will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. That God is a God of justice. That when we do wrong, God is a God of justice. doesn't mean when you accept people, it doesn't matter what people do. We accept people so that they can understand that God cares about them wants to make things right. We accept them so they will then accept Jesus Christ. Paul quotes from Isaiah. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who is King David, who is Jesus, Jesus Christ. He will stand as a signal for his people. We bring people to Jesus. So there is the summary. Three reasons why we accept other people. So that we can make the work of God known to others. So that secondly, we can bring accountability to people who need to understand God's the God of justice. And thirdly, so they can accept Jesus Christ. I want to give you three stories that illustrates this. And the first comes from our own congregation. I have the permission of the author of this particular email to read portions of it. And this comes from a family in our church who joined one of our life groups. And if you sit in a seat in the big house here, we'd love to have you here. But you'll really get connected to people if you go to a life group. And here's what one person wrote to me just two weeks ago. Dear Pastor Dave, I'm writing you this letter to let you know how abundantly we have been blessed by the people of Calvary Church. And what an amazing job they are doing of living out God's calling of generosity and service. My husband and I began attending Calvary about two years ago. We were immediately welcomed in by several families after attending Calvary for a short time. We knew it would be our home. Last summer we joined a life group because we wanted to deepen relationships with people in the church and meet new families and have a group for spiritual growth and accountability. We had no idea how the families in this group would impact our lives. As we shared some of our financial concerns with the group and asked for prayer and wisdom, our life group not only lifted us up in prayer, but also began to bless us financially with their generosity. It began with an envelope given to us at church, Sunday with a check inside. A few weeks later, it was an offer to loan us money interest-free, no deadline to pay it back to help pay off the credit card debt. A few weeks later, it was an anonymous check in the mail. On it goes. And she concludes, Our life group has taught us to trust God in God's provisions. 
And when that when communities are functioning as Jesus has called them, then we are to share the needs and burdens of each other. We've been able to host safe families where we take in children who need a safe home in, because of the danger of their biological parents. We've been able to host safe family children again so that the blessing given to us will not stop but be passed on to others. That's the whole idea. I accept others so that I can help them to see the work of God in our lives. We also have a really amazing example of generosity in the body of Christ to share with our friends and neighbors when they ask about the new car that was provided. If this isn't the best promotion of a life group that you've ever heard, then I don't know what it is. We just wanted to share what Calvary has done for us and why we're so thankful to call it home. Why do we accept people so that we can make the work of God known? So that God can testify that as we accept others, God's work expands. God's work is blessed. We multiply through us to others. So accept them so they can see the work of God. Accept them to warn them that they will be held accountable to the Lord. Let me give you one of my favorite stories of one of my friends. I grew up with a fellow by the name of Dick. Dick and I went to high school together and then uh, went to Westmont College together. And then I went to Dallas Seminary. He went to Denver Seminary and I've forgiven him for that. And then Dick ended up in a church in Colorado. He was pastoring a church up in the, uh, one of the ski resorts in the Rocky Mountains. Dick was having a good run there in his ministry, a lot of tourists and all that sort of things you might expect. And a youth pastor in his church. The youth pastor ended up embezzling church funds, stole from the offering. Well, most of us would rise up in righteous anger. So Dick goes to the elders and he says, man, we can't let this thing get away with us. We, we need to deal justly with this uh, youth pastor and, and settle this because the people's money had been stolen. Well, the elder says, no, nah, we don't, we don't want to get... It looks too dirty, bad reputation. People will find out. We don't want to mess with it. So they said, let's just brush it under the rug. We won't do anything about it. Well, Dick was outraged over this dismissal of an obvious wrongdoing. And so Dick resigned. One Sunday, he stood before his congregation, read a letter of resignation. And this is the reason why this dismissive of this terrible behavior on the behalf of a pastor. That next Sunday, after his resignation, huge thunderstorm, as only the Rockies can have a thunderstorm, came blowing through. And as a result of that thunderstorm, lightning came. And a lightning bolt the next Sunday came, struck the church, and burned it down. That next week, the chairman of the elder board knocked on Dick's door and said, We've reconsidered our position on this matter. It's true. I love that story. I love that God still does the big stuff sometimes. Because most of the stuff is kind of small stuff. But we're so appreciative. And I love to remind our elders that it's good to listen to the pastor and do the right thing. We laugh. It was tragedy. It was, it was a tragic thing. And Dick go, did go back. He, re, he returned to the pulpit. He stayed with him. And the youth pastor was dealt with properly. But it reminds me that God's watching. And there's an accountability. And we want people to know that God loves them. But He doesn't let everybody just do anything He wants. 
So we need to come in accountability. And finally, we accept them so that they will accept Jesus. There's another church. A fellow by the name of Taylor is in that church. Taylor was the head of the men's ministry. He's doing a great job. Had 150 men in his men's ministry. It was vital, strong. And then the church went through some changes. And I don't know what happens. We've gone through some changes. And every time we go through changes, people get tweaked or ticked off or something. I don't get it all. But they, oh, i got to leave. I can't stay here and fellowship with people like you. And so that's what happened with Taylor. And so Taylor said, oh, I'm really upset over how you've treated me here. So he left the church. He quit. I want nothing to do with God or the church. One of those kind of things. So the men of the men's ministry, they said, well, we're not going to leave it like that. So that next week after Taylor quit, the men of the men's ministry, 150 of them, they brought their tents and their sleeping bags, and they built their tents, and they spent a little tent city in, in Taylor's front yard. And they brought in the electrical cords that they plugged into neighbors' houses so they could watch TV at night. That's what men like to do, right? And then they brought their barbecue grills and their smokers so they could eat. So 150 men, and they sort of rotated 24-hour basis in Taylor's front yard. And I don't know that this is going to work for everyone, but it was amazing in this particular case. And so Taylor says, I, I'm sick and tired of you guys sitting in my front yard. You're cross, you're, you're uh, what's it, you're uh, trespassing. Thank you. Couldn't do it without you. So they're trespassing. So he calls the police. So the police show up. They knock on Taylor's door, seeing all these men tent at the city in the front yard. And Taylor opens the door. Taylor walks out on the front porch. And as Taylor's about to make a complaint about the men in the front yard, the men see Taylor saying, Yay, Taylor! We love you! Come on out! We love you! Two days later, he calls the police again. The police come. They open the door. Taylor walks out. Yay, Taylor! We love you! Come on out! Please! We'd love to see you again. Come back to our church. Every day when the cops would come, when Taylor walks out on the front porch, the men cheer for him day and night. And finally on day six, on day six, he calls the cops one more time. He walks out on the porch and the men lit this big old cheer, Saturday, all there. And Taylor, we love you. We want you back. And Taylor finally just breaks down. He comes out and men... As only men can hug each other, men hugged each other. Kind of the group hug thing, you know. Tears are being shed. And Taylor says, yeah, I'll come back. And I don't know if that'll work for everybody that rebels against the church. Unless you want to have a tent city in your front yard, you better stay here. But, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But it's an illustration that you accept them so they will accept Jesus. And sometimes it's extraordinary. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it's just the gentle, small little gifts of a loaf of bread and a basket of soap in the front door of a couple that has been grievously hurt. But whatever it takes, the time and the patience. That's why Paul says, with perseverance and encouragement, right? From the Old Testament to God, it takes perseverance and encouragement to accept others so they will accept Jesus. And then as a result of that, the result is that there's this great benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I close with this last story. Judd Wilhite is the pastor of Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. If you ever go to Las Vegas to do a little uh, whatever you do in Las Vegas, you'll know it stays there. But go to Central Christian Church, Judd Wilhite. 
Judd Wilhite tells a story of their ministry to the homeless population. There was a fellow by the name of Cody Huff. If you're into pro bass fishing, you might remember Cody Huff. Cody Huff was on ESPN. He had a pro bass show where he showed how to catch bass fish. Well, Cody got himself involved with crack cocaine, meth, and he lost everything, literally $600,000 of debt, and became a homeless guy living on the streets of Las Vegas for months. Well, Central Christian Church had a ministry to the homeless people, and one of the things they did is to invite people like Cody, and Cody in particular, to come to their church and shower. So this is how Cody describes this event. I walked into the church for the shower, and this lady named Michelle, who knew me from, some homeless, from the homeless ministry, said, Good morning, Cody. How are you? And then she looked at me and said, Cody, you need a hug. And I said, Honey... You don't want to touch me. I haven't had a shower in three months. Well, if Michelle heard me, she didn't seem to care. And she walked up and she looked into my eyes and she gave me a big hug and told me that Jesus loved me. In that split second, I was somebody. She even remembered my name. And that was the point where I knew that God was alive in the world. And she welcomed him in with that big hug and everybody else welcomed him in. And, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ in time. And he and his wife found a wife, got married, and now they are the head for the last three years. They head up the homeless ministry of Central Christian Church. And Cody says that this ministry to the homeless population all began with one person loving another person. That hug by Michelle began the journey of changing his life. Accepted, regardless of the filth, the dirt, the awfulness this world will create. I'd like for us to be people in a church like that. I'd like to invite you to do something. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to greet those that are around you. And I have a question for you to ask each other. How has God worked in your life this year? Now, there could be anything like you went to Hawaii, you get to go to Hawaii, you got vacation coming up, got a job, uh, got a pedicure, you know, whatever those things are. Or it could be something, God has saved me from the homeless, saved me from the sexual orientation of my desires, saved me from crack cocaine or meth, some of these stories we just heard, whatever it may be, heavy or light. Would you share with someone how God has worked in your life? We're going to take a few moments. Make sure you listen. Give each church, each other a chance. And then I'll come back up and close us out. But begin the journey to understand that everybody around you is okay or not okay. And it doesn't matter. We accept everyone. All, as Jesus said. So would you stand up and accept those around you by asking and answering, how's God worked in your life? You might have to walk a little distance to find somebody.